The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for October 13th, 2016, the trying to find someone who was not assaulted by Donald Trump edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation has finally loosed his shackles. I'm glad to see that you have loosed your shackles, John. You're free to love once more. Hello, John. Let's all loose our shackles. Why not? I am unshackled. That's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. She's unshackled. She's unshackled from from modernity, so she's now just wearing period costume, as she's always wanted to. (laughs) On this week's Gabfest, oh my God, a day feels like a year these days. First. That's so true. First, the turmoil in the Republican Party. Paul Ryan disassociating, Donald Trump disrupting the Republican Party. But as that story unfolds, look, there are four new women alleging sexual assault by Donald Trump. Oh, no, five. Hold on. There's four more of them. Wait, now there's another one. Yesterday, on Wednesday, there appear to have been 10 very credible allegations of sexual assault by Donald Trump by tons of different women in tons of different circumstances. Oh, my God. By the time we're done taping today, who knows what could have happened. Then, after we've exhausted that, we will talk about the revelations in the WikiLeaks Clinton documents, the excerpts from her Goldman speeches, their backs and forths with reporters. Is this the October surprise we've been waiting for, or is there something else coming? And then we'll talk about whether it is ethical not to vote in this election and whether it's ethical to vote for a third party when you know that there's a a villainous candidate to be defeated on the other side. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, how do you talk to your children about this presidential election? John Dickerson has some lessons for us. (laughs) We have some good news. Uh, The bad news is our Boston show is sold out. The good news is we have a live show in New York just after Thanksgiving, Wednesday, November 30th. Not just any live show, my friends. It is our annual conundrum show. We're going to do it at the Bell House in Brooklyn on Wednesday, November 30th at 7.30 p.m. The tickets are at slate.com slash live. This is the show where we go deep on some non-political topics like would you rather be a dragon or own a dragon? How serious of a crime would your mother or father have to commit before you turned him or her in? We'll ask Ivanka Trump that. Would you kill baby Hitler? Other great questions that you are going to ask us and that we're going to collect from you over the next few weeks, but we'll also take questions live. And there's going to be a pre-show cocktail hour for a limited number of fans. If you purchase that package, you can get a complimentary drink with us, and that costs a little bit extra, obviously. And Slate Plus members, you get a 30% off with the discount code 11PGBK, 11PGBK. So come join us in Brooklyn for Conundrum Show, November 30th, slate.com slash live for tickets. Have you guys thought up any conundrums yet? Have you, you I, I put one in the... Um... John's a conundrum which, factory. Yeah, yes. what is, I'm constantly beset by conundrums. What, what came up? Um, the conundrum I think it line? was. It was. I got it from Reddit. I think it was something like, "If you could, if you could be five again, knowing what you know now, right? What would you do differently?" Yeah, well, that's that would be dark. Thing. If you were five, knowing what you know now, that would be so dark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Every day, this presidential election gets more and more horrifying. On Wednesday evening came news of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten new allegations of sexual assault against Donald Trump covering 30 years. Uh, these add on to earlier claims of sexual assault by him, including very credible legal claims. 
as well as other claims that he peeped on naked uh, contestants in one of his pageants. It's just it, it it is shocking. The the most shocking one to me. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's impossible to keep up. Was the People magazine reporter who was yes. there interviewing Trump and Melania for a puff piece about their first anniversary, and Melania goes off to get changed, and Trump corners oh takes the reporter and says, "I want to show you a special room in the house," and pushes her up against the wall and kisses her, and then the butler comes in and says. While she's trying to fend him off, the butler comes in and says Melania is ready, and then Trump goes back just to his his uxorious, repellent self. Um, it is you have to remember that Melania was heavily pregnant in that story, and actually, the wives being pregnant seems to line up with a number of these allegations. Ugh. Well, this is just uh, the latest horror in a very bizarre week that began. Uh, I suppose you could say it began with the grab the pussy video from. Last week, we talked about that in our post-debate gab fest on Monday morning. You can listen to that there, followed by the hideous debate on Sunday night, followed by then Paul Ryan, the House Speaker, renouncing campaigning for Trump without, however, unendorsing him, followed by Trump starting to, or the Trump campaign starting to compare Bill Clinton to Bill Cosby. We are not even talking about Trump admitting that he didn't pay federal income taxes or the time that he said he would have Hillary Clinton jailed. It is, it's become ugly at a level uh, that I don't think any of us imagined it could be. Oh, God, Emily, I don't even have a question. I'm just saying, oh, God, to you. That's all. Well, I also just want to add to the mix Trump's attacks on Republicans. He's been on Twitter and his rallies just laying into Ryan and John McCain and um, any Republicans he feels like aren't totally supporting him. And it's all this idea that the only thing he's guilty of is salty language, as he put it the other night, ripping into John McCain. And how dare they not be standing with him? And this obviously presents a huge dilemma for the Republican Party. Something like, John can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think something like two-thirds of Republicans are supporting Trump. And so for candidates who are in close elections or just thinking about their futures, this question of how to handle this um, incredibly tricky political presence who has support from their base, but is increasingly viewed as toxic by the rest of the country. It really seems like a, a moment of truth for them. It's hard to know where to take hold of this uh, giant hairball. Um, but, Trump usually starts with the with the uh, butt. That's where he grabs. Um, and, but yeah, let's let's uh, let's see if we can just for a moment uh, stay away from the ugliest part of this and and just uh, yeah, if you're a Republican right now, uh, and we should get into because uh, I think it would be interesting the moral choice that uh, people are making because because people made a a version of this choice with Bill Clinton when they uh, yes. knew about what he did. Now, the interesting question, of course, is what they knew when he was a candidate yeah, they and didn't, what they knew. No, in 96, when he was running, none of that, none of the worst stuff right. was out. So there's 92 also. So 96, obviously, the Monica Lewinsky stuff wasn't out. But then, anyway, let's not get, let's not get totally sidetracked because one of the things that, that these lawmakers, that there are those that are craven and just want their team to win. Uh, there are those that are chicken and know in their heart what they believe, but are worried that if they come out against Trump, they will be punished by their supporters. 
anyway, I think the, and there are those who are pragmatists, right? I mean, you can make a pragmatic case well, for supporting <clears throat> Trump. Well, that's yeah. I, I guess that's you're right, and that's the third case, and that's the one that seems like the Clinton case because it seems like in, in Clinton's case, there you wouldn't have had a huge backlash if you came out against him. I mean, did Joe Lieberman face a huge backlash? He did, maybe for other reasons. But anyway, the, the, here's the thing: if I'm a Republican and I'm sticking with Donald Trump, and this was the case, and this is what Paul Ryan was was evaluating when he had the, this kind of deep guttural revulsion at the, as it was explained to me, um, to the video. Now, he's got a special tricky problem, which is that he's not just his own person, but he's also the Speaker of the House. So when he does something, it creates issues for all the members in the House conference, what pressures that puts on them. But the, the fact is, if you stick with Donald Trump, I mean, you're locked in. I think there's no getting out from under this in the future. And you, you know, for good or ill, maybe all these stories get totally blown over and you stood and you stood with this good man, as Mike Pence calls him, and you against the, you know, media and against the elites who were all manufacturing these stories against Donald Trump. And you were the moral person by standing by him. The other choice is that you were the moral person who always saw it this way. Uh, and despite the punishment of your party and the social media hell and the chance you might lose your office, you acted on principle rather than party uh, loyalty. Many months ago, Romney gave a speech about how it's a time for choosing. I mean, it's really uh, people are making sort of career so, decisions. Do you now. think that the credible evidence that he does not merely say despicable things about women, he is also a serial sexual molester. Do you think those allegations have any impact on the race? Do these they actually change? Because there's no tape of these assaults. Yeah. Even th though there are now 10 claims from 10 different women, there's no tape. I but think... Uh, Come on. Uh, his challenge was to to build his coalition. He's got his 35, 38%. His challenge was to make that to 45%. The problem there was reluctant Republicans, women, college-educated Republicans, men and women. He was already having that problem before the tape. Then there was the tape. Now there are 10 simultaneous allegations that confirm and match exactly what he was talking about on the tape. It seems to me unlikely that those people who were skittish before, skittish about the tape, would, would be unskittish un now. And also, by the way, we talked about this after the debate, but this is there's a more important point here, which is that Donald Trump has a vision of power and a view of power and a view of what he can do that operates outside of the normal boundaries, whether it's the First Amendment, whether it's social boundaries, whether it's power state boundaries, whether it's law and order boundaries. This is a this is his this is his worldview. It is a very appealing worldview to some people. It is frightening to others. Emily, is there a possibility that, in fact, the Republican Party has had it all wrong as someone some someone I was reading this week? speculates that they've believed their voters to be actually conservative, ideological, low tax, low regulation, low government voters. But in fact, if you start to dig in, the majority of Republican voters are actually angry, uh, upset, bitter, white nationalists driven by who are indifferent to ideology and are interested in authoritarianism and a kind of return to some imagined past that never existed. I find that portrait to be reductionist in a way that just seems like it can't be right to me. It's so demonizing of millions of people. I feel like, you know, the reality of any electorate, and you could say this about the left too, is that they're sure there are strands of anger and, you know, misinformation and reaching for some 
um, sense of security that might lead you down a scary path if you went too far. But then there's also a lot of anxiety and struggle and feeling like people are not doing as well as they wish they would or as their parents did or that their children won't have the lives that they want for their children. Um, we were emailing about David Leonhardt's column in The Times this week, which is the first, I think, of many columns he's planning to write about exactly this sense of dislocation in the American public. And it's not just a Republican or a Trump supporter phenomenon. There are obviously plenty of people, you know, poor and working class who are liberals who also feel like things are not going so well for them and that the growing inequality in the country is hurting them. So I just feel really reluctant. There's because Trump is such a brutal, ugly phenomenon right now. And I will confess, it's hard for me to quite grasp how you can look beyond that and support him for reasons that seem more legitimate. But I feel like that's obscuring and kind of blackening or darkening, I should say, um, darkening this picture that is really like much more right. in shades of gray. Wait, can, I, can I add to that, uh, which is that that I think we make a mistake when we attribute to these when we say that these Trump supporters are this particular way uh, and he's brought it out of them. The thing that is so horrible about Donald Trump is that he makes people, that his presence and the way he acts makes people behave in ways that they themselves actually probably don't feel. He makes people worse than they are. That's a disgusting way to be. He makes people feel more angry and more violent and more vicious and more prejudiced and more hateful than they actually would feel had another politician approached them in a different way. And 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 I think what the Republican Party's job is going to be in the next couple of years is to, to try to sort of separate the genuine legitimate um, despair and and misery that people are feeling from the hatefulness and try and try to kind of speak to the misery, but in the in the way that Paul Ryan does speak to the misery. The problem is that heightened emotion is easier than non heightened emotion. It's easier to create that. Yeah, Can, for sure. He's appealing to people's worst selves, and then there's this weird irony to go back to all. He's the creating. It's not just that he's appealing and, to those worst oh, selves. Yeah, he is, is making their worst selves worse. He is actually yeah. extracting. He's he's boiling it down so they people become worse. This quintessence of of awfulness that he creates in people. Can yeah, I just? I was struck this week. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Be struck. I was struck this week by a couple of ads Trump put out that are so fear mongering. I mean, they are so the opposite of Reagan's Morning in America. It's such a tone of melancholy and disaster. I mean, that was the word he kept using over and over again. And it is how it's the picture of America he's reflecting back at us. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the whole game, right? And, and this started, this does break from a, a, a tradition, certainly in a tradition that's been successful, because even if you look at Richard Nixon, who um, people talked about the echoes of the law and order pitch that Nixon was making in 1968, his 1968 convention speech had some lift in it, had some talk about better days. He clearly felt that it was important to pitch to people the idea that things would get better and to paint that for people and to embrace that part of of what he was trying to do. Trump, I mean, literally has the slogan, make America great again. And that's the extent of his optimism. Um, 
it really is a pitch which makes it closer to Wallace. It's a pitch where the the target is resentment, and but also to heighten those to keep, which is what what Wallace used to do in the course of a speech, remind people of all the reasons they should be angry. So this is the governing challenge. Let's imagine that Donald Trump were to get elected and. And there are two challenges to his ability to actually fix any of the things he said he wants to fix. First is that he doesn't seem to, if the debates are a measurement, he doesn't seem to really want to wrestle when the time comes with the compulsory uh, parts of the job, the compulsory things you would need to do. He bragged about saying once he needed to, he could get up to speed on any issue in a couple of days and be better versed on it and smarter than the experts who had devoted their lives to it. There's no evidence that that's the case. So is there is this, there's just the, forget all this other stuff. There is just the pure nuts and bolts of solving a problem that he's shown no aptitude in the times it's been tested in the course of the campaign for solving those problems. But the second thing is this scorched earth strategy he's got at the moment, which is essentially to react to challenges to his character by trying to drive down the vote in the Democratic Party by raising all of Bill Clinton's issues with his character. Bill Clinton has many issues with his character. Donald Trump wants to bring them up from now until the voting stops as a way to depress turnout from the Democrats in the hopes that the the remaining Democratic base is smaller than the remaining Donald Trump base. That is a reaction to something that happened to Donald Trump, not because the Clinton team launched it, but because he's in a bind. So that reaction to challenge is a test. Imagine that in the White House, something bad happens. If the response is not to meet it head on, but is to divert and to create more chaos, that's A, going to be uh, an unsettling thing, and B, is going to, to distract even further from actually dealing with the problems that he is being brought in to deal with. It, John, what do Hillary and House Democrats have to do to actually take the House? Is it within the realm of possibility? I don't think it's within the realm. Of, but there are about 30 seats that are in play. If they won every one of those seats, they could take back the House. I don't think they're going to win uh, because there is some separation that's taking place in the electorate. We certainly see it in the Senate. You know, Rob Portman is doing very well in Ohio. Donald Trump isn't doing so well in Ohio. And we see it also perhaps in, well, in Florida, um, Marco Rubio has not distanced himself from. Marco Rubio is in the camp. By the way, it, we, there are, I think, anywhere from 11 to 20 distinct camps of Republicans in their right. you know, degrees <laughs> right. of separation right. from right. Donald Trump. I wanted to see that. Rob Portman is, um, is in the, I'm not voting for him. I'm going to write in you know, someone else. I think he might have said Mike Pence. Marco Rubio is still on the Trump train, but Rubio still may My win. My favorite is Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, who says that he may not tell voters one way or the other yeah. until <laughs> after election day. I, that is awesome. <laughs> What a jerk. The members who are most angry at Paul Ryan for saying that he won't defend Donald Trump and won't campaign or help him are the ones who are all in the safe districts and with, you know, and being and, and part of what Ryan has done, by the way, is allow those people in districts with lots of Trump voters to beat up on him as a way to solidify their support in their district. And this is what a speaker sometimes has to do. Oh, oh so this is so so a lot of the anger at Ryan is theatrical anger. Well, it's it, whether that was Ryan's intent, it is the yes. I mean, there's a lot of theatrical anger. You want to be the person who was on the conference call screaming at Paul Ryan right. for abandoning Donald right. Trump. And then if you're a person in a in a district where where it's more touch and go, Paul Ryan, in doing what he did, gave you some cover to do what you need to do by making it seem like there's a larger space. You know, it's more sanctioned by 
uh, right-thinking Republicans. And presumably, if you were in that kind of district, you've got more people who listen to Paul Ryan. So, so even if the many, many worse things come out about Trump, in your view, the election is sort of pretty set. It's Hillary wins the election. Well, I guess the Senate is, you know, sort of could go break either way, and then the House remains Republican. The House remains. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of dynamic left to run in the race. Well, the funny thing is, it might end up being pretty much what we've got now, (laughs) which now the 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 House majority could shrink, and it's as we mentioned before, it's likely if it's going to shrink, it's going to be those Republicans on the bubble, the ones who are more quote unquote moderate or or um, closer to the center who would lose because the lack of turnout Republicans and and the turnout among Democrats. I think the reason Hillary Clinton is in in good shape is is remember in addition to the fact she's ahead by uh, you know six to nine ish in the average of national polls, she also has a superior ground game and the electoral advantage of more democratic states. I mean, Donald Trump has to win basically Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Iowa, Nevada. He has to win lots and lots of states, which means if he's got a problem, he doesn't just have to solve it. He has to solve it in very specific states, which have different dynamics. Iowa being a white, highly non-college educated voting population is very different than North Carolina, which is highly college educated. And and Pennsylvania, where he was putting a lot of his chips, a couple of polls have come out that show Clinton up by six, Clinton by eight, up by nine. So aren't you surprised, Emily, how little impact on polling there's been that actually it's gone from a Hillary, you know, three, four to Hillary, six, seven. No, because it's such a partisan country and because Gary Johnson and Jill Stein are still pulling enough support. And I wonder if those people at the very end are going to break for one candidate or the other. Do either of you think there's there's some like highly outrageous other thing that can drop around Trump that would shift the dynamic of the election or that we you, you mean make it worse, make it worse for him? There are things that could make it worse for I, Hillary. There aren't really things that can make it better for Trump. Well, don't you think it will be more of a trickle? I mean, we brought up Bill Cosby at the beginning of the show because Trump is trying to pin Bill Cosby on Bill Clinton. But I feel like this dynamic now is Trump's version of Bill Cosby, where each of these women has a story to tell that is offensive and a problem for Trump. But if it was just one person, it would be hard to come and tell your story. You're not you don't have evidence of like traditional sexual assault. We're talking about things sometimes from a long time ago. And Trump is a man of a lot of power and incredible vindictiveness. And so it's scary to come forward. But once there is a trickle, there could be a stream. I mean, 10 is already the beginning of a stream. And you wonder what will happen if some of the people around Trump who've signed non-disclosure agreements find that they want to come forward or just if more women feel like it's their duty to tell these stories because they see um, the number of women who already have done so. And that, you know, every day Trump has to deal with those allegations is um, a day when he's not like getting back on his feet. Here's another thing some a Republican brought up to me, which is there are those people who are defecting in the middle of a campaign and making a potentially or presumably somewhat dangerous choice within the Republican Party. There are a lot of people who would defect but are too scared because they think it would hurt them politically. Imagine this Republican brought to me about what it's going to be like to try and staff a Trump administration. 
That is an elective choice. You're not already a member of office who has to worry about your voters. You're a person who has to choose to go into the Trump administration. That's a group of people who have to choose to sign up for this highly unpredictable, potentially chaotic administration. Who is going to – I mean people – there are there have already been huge defections from the foreign policy community. I mean it's – there's almost no one left from the traditional Republican foreign policy and some people would say, hey, that's great. You know, they got us they, – they're responsible for all these bad things perhaps. But at some point you need bodies and this sense of chaos – uh, let alone, just leaving aside the moral component of it is, um, is one that's going to make it really hard for them to staff a White House with people who are really talented and at the top of their game. I think we can pretty much agree that the Trump White House is not going to be staffed with people who are really talented and at the top of their game. That has <laughs> a dead certainty, even if he is elected. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. In any other campaign, the WikiLeaks revelations would be the story of the election, partly the actual substance of them, the bits of the Hillary Clinton speeches to Goldman Sachs that she wouldn't release give and take with a New York Times reporter about what's on the record, some sniffing around about the FBI email investigation by her staff. But more, the origin of these leaks would be the subject of concern. The apparent fact that these documents were stolen by Russian hackers directed by the Russian government trying to tamper with the American electoral process. So, Emily, has there been that you can see any impact on the race from the WikiLeaks, or the fact that that this is a dark ops orchestrated by an American enemy to mess with the election. Well, if you don't trust Hillary Clinton, you can find things in these emails to confirm your feeling that she's not a straight talker, etc. And the Trump campaign has used them to that end fairly effectively. Um, the whole thing of like the public and private position and the fact that I guess that her staff was in communication with the Department of Justice, although it doesn't seem like any information that wasn't public got passed. There's like a coziness and a chumminess and an incredible amount of orchestration. You know, the idea of four aides working on a tweet, for example. On the other hand, <laughs> isn't this politics as it's devolved to us at this point in history? I mean, it is true that Clinton doesn't – it appears she doesn't have the instinct for politics we imagine Obama having, and I guess you could be disappointed by that, but it just seems like 
(laughs) compared to this like volatile, uncontrolled rival that a little too much control and orchestration seems like a fairly minor sin. And then I guess the other thing is that politically, because she can argue that she's been hacked by the Russians and that, like you said, they were trying to interfere with the election. That's a, and then she can accuse Trump of, you know, being on board for that. So that there's a way in which his efforts to use these emails against her can also turn into a talking point against him. What do you think, John? Um, well, I think the geopolitical p- part of it is the most fascinating, which is Fred Kaplan uh, sketched that out in his piece in Slate, just the the administration says this comes from the senior part of the Russian government. So how do you retaliate against that? Is that public claim really an effort to tell the Russians, stop it, go no further? It could get quite ugly. America, according to Kaplan, is quite good or the, U- the United States government is good at counter cyber. Uh, but uh, America is also incredibly vulnerable to cyber attack. So that's the part that feels biggest. That's the part that feels like the dark cloud off on the horizon, but uh, either about this election, but but also about the future. This election being, you know, can they hack electronic voting machines and that kind of thing is another part of that is a part of that cloud. But anyway, in terms of the politics of this, yeah, it, you read it and you uh, there's not a sentence in there in which, uh, you know, an aide to Hillary Clinton says, Oh, let's just be honest about the complexities and the changing positions of our candidates so that people will have a better understanding of the person they're electing to be president. (laughs) So you don't find that sentence. It's lots and lots of sentences of either how to dodge what is an obvious dodge. And if people wonder why the press asks the the campaign over and over again about her position on trade promotion authority or on the – Trans-Pacific Partnership or her position on Keystone or her position on the server, that's because – Either A, there is a a strategic, long-discussed, much-worried-over plan to um, misinform the country about her positions, A, or B, they're fumbling and don't really know how to deal with this in the campaign. So, of course, they don't know how to articulate it out loud because they don't even know what to really say themselves. I think, as Emily says, so if you're a voter, what do you do? What's the choice here? On the one hand, you have here WikiLeaks. This is a perfect example of what politics is like now. It's basically lots and lots of energy spent in how to spin things, how to take what are obvious changes in position and pretend that they're not, uh, which is uh, you know what Bernie Sanders was talking about on trade with Hillary Clinton, putting a lot of energy into what is a fundamentally a deception. So that's what all of this shows. But you're also – voters are having to choose between two candidates and the other candidate – if you look at the debate, uh, the last debate, there were, you know, half a dozen gargantuan things like let's just take the ban on Muslims immigrating into the United States. I mean, take the ban on Muslims versus Hillary Clinton on TPA, the Trade Promotion Authority, and there's there's really no – these two things are not equivalent. The other part of this is what happens when they become president. I think the – What these WikiLeaks show is that if Hillary Clinton were to become president, everybody's going to have to spend a lot of time staying uh, in the Clinton – if there is a Clinton administration, staying in their face because what you're hearing from the administration will be several degrees away from what's actually the case. I don't know, John. I mean what amazed me about the WikiLeaks substantively as opposed to the geopolitical question is that there was – absolutely nothing that I found interesting or surprising. Literally, there was nothing that was interesting or surprising in them. But that's because you see this all the time and you say that, well, it's just politics, which it is. Yes, I, it I, is. Right. If there you look at the people, Bush the administration reason, or the right, Clinton administration. Or the, There's a reason, or the though, that there are people Bush furious with politicians. Like the, the, because politicians, whether it's Clinton or Bush or Obama or whoever, 
don't tell people what they actually well, believe and what but, they do. That's why people hate politicians. It's why they – and they hate the press that just goes, oh, yeah, well, I, it's just politics. You know, but you know what's so funny? I, I go back to this again and again is that we we are accustomed to double talking and ambivalence and ambiguity in every other aspect of our own life, including our own work life. Anyone who's worked in an office knows that there's office politics and you say you shade something as you're talking to one person slightly differently than you do when you're talking to another. And you know in your own family life that you tell one cousin something and you don't tell your uncle something the same thing because you don't just don't want to have conflict that you don't need to have. And so the idea that politics is somehow distinct and different from every other way that people – human beings interact in life is so weird to me. It is not – it may be weird to you, but people – prefer and would like and expect out in the country there to be a shorter distance between what politicians believe in private and what they believe in public. I'm not saying, again, this is not a comparison between candidates. This is a discussion about uh, one candidate, what they're trying to do behind the scenes and what they're doing in public. And this and the distance between the two is what makes people... But incredibly di- irritating. It's why Bernie Sanders was so successful despite being the kind of candidate nobody would have guessed would have been successful but, in the first but place. John, but John, that distance is is actually pretty small. It's pretty small for all of these people. And, and you could make a strong argument that it's much larger for Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders was advocating things which were manifestly impossible to achieve within the American political system. And therefore, were, were, were the idealism, which was plain spoken and heartfelt and, and noble in some sense, but was totally unrealistic, that the realism and kind of cynicism and, and shading that exists in what Clinton is doing is – is a reflection of how you actually, you know, navigate a complicated world and a complicated political system and a complicated non-functioning legislative branch. It seems to me entirely our problem, our failure of empathy, our failure of understanding how <laughs> institutions exist. It is not Hillary Clinton's problem. So there's a it, difference between trying to work legislation with members of the legislature and negotiating tactics which might, might not uh, be 100 percent honest in the dealings to get legislation through in a competitive environment. It's a different thing in an, in an election where part of what you're doing is selling people on the idea that what you're saying is – your, is the God's honest truth. Like if you're only giving people half of what you believe or something that's different than what you believe, then go ahead and be straight with them about that. But the context in which campaigns take place is one in which there is supposed to be a higher level of honesty. Now, whether that's good or bad uh, yeah. is maybe is up for discussion, but it's the terms upon which the campaigns are fought and the ones and the and the campaign is being waged right now. So if you're going to set the terms and then you don't live up to the terms, Judge Bazelon, then you know that's that's a problem. Judge Bazelon, a word from you. Isn't the context of a campaign though? What trade offs do I need to make in order to win so I can do the things I really care about? And then the way one assesses the gap that we're seeing here between like. Total straight talking, follow my principles versus like orchestration. How do I deal with my, you know, TPP announcement, which I don't want to make a big deal of because I'm shifting. Like the way that one judges that, I think, is whether you fundamentally trust the person in office to do the things that they say they're going to do and whether you share their idea of whether those are the most important things, right? I mean, so for example, you know, think about how Obama, in my view, lied about his feelings on gay marriage, um, or at least took so long to come around that it just wasn't credible anymore that he truly wasn't 
um, a supporter of gay marriage, but he was obviously making a political calculation about when it was going to be worth it to him to take the political hit or risk to announce what, you know, by the time he announced it was like he there was no political hit anymore. And so you can fault him for that. And it can always be something that you hold against him if you think he's was wrong and probably obfuscating. On the other hand, you can ask, like, well, what did he get done along the way that he kind of bargained this for? And I feel like in a campaign, that is part of what campaigning is, that you do promise things or take positions. I mean, is there any candidate who's run who hasn't sh- taken some shift, made some shift for strategic reasons that, that was like a pretty big thing and was unprincipled, but right. then like they get in office and but, they do something and we forgive them. But the distinct the point I was making from the get-go here is not that this is that there is unique dissembling here or unique dishonesty. In fact, the first point was in the context of the two choices, you've got Donald Trump doing like nuclear size, both changes <laughs> right. of position and dissembling. I mean, he literally denies things that he said moments before. So five minutes earlier. Right. The point <laughs> is that if you if people wander around wondering where the anger comes from in this campaign, whether it's in the Democratic primary process or at the heart of the Trump campaign, the constant feeling that the lawmakers who are talking to you are not telling it to you straight uh, on things that you care deeply about is what makes people dislike those lawmakers. That's just the the way it is. And this is an example of what we may recognize as politics as usual, but it is politics as usual that have people incredibly upset uh, with their lives. Well, but John, here's what I would say is that we've been presented with three different models for how to talk about politics and political positions in this election. One model one is Donald Trump, which is absolutist. It is politically incorrect to use his words. It's not. It's simply a series of lies followed by lies, followed by, you know, denial of lie. So yes, it's it's oh I guess it's straightforward, but then he'll he will com- completely reverse no, himself. No, but it has convenient. lots of flip flopping. Flip flop, like yeah, yeah, said, yeah. So right? that's one like, model, one yeah. model, which is totally deceptive. Another model is the Bernie Sanders model, which is very idealistic, very emphatic and absolutist, and I think you know does represent sort of positions that people genuinely want. And that Sanders wants, but is also unrealistic in its idealism. It is, but that can be debated and, out loud and, and out. With- and the third model is the Clinton model, which is the tr- the trimming the sails and its positioning, and it's being very calculating about what what you're going to say and what you aren't going to say and how to position it. And and if I have to pick one of those options, it is by far the Clinton option, and that people are being children. They are being infants if they think the other two are better somehow or more realistic or truer. It's false. So here's the thing about the the section second option. If somebody says it should be this way and that says that is my honest belief and then you say but it can't be that way for X, Y, and Z, all of the elements of the conversation and about the limits of what you can do are all out in public and everybody can make an assessment about whether the one guy is a pie in the sky or, or whether in a world where we, where we all try to live a certain way and then kind of are a certain way and recognize the difference between the two, you say, well, yes, he's a, he wants all these great things over here, but it's likely to not totally get there. But now we understand why it's not likely to totally get there. There are these certain limitations, and we think he has the ability to manage those limitations, or he's really just in the clouds and, and really will just be disappointed that he can't get everything he wants and therefore be totally ineffectual. 
And that is a conversation in which all the elements are visible to the people participating in the conversation. The other conversation is which somebody is presenting something to you in which they are hiding something. And yet they are presenting themselves to you as if they are offering you something. So the conversation takes place in an unreal environment. The unreality of the second option well, is one that you yeah, can talk well, you're, about. You're, in the first option, you don't even know what the unreality well, your view, is. Your view is, your view is that radical transparency is the is the only honesty, whereas that's not my view. My view is that there are times in when campaigns are in governing. In well, I They're think you're two different things. You're 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 using the example of the campaign. I think even in a campaign that radical transparency is is a mistaken idea because it it changes the terms of the and debate. And radical transparency people... is different than dishonesty, right? Radical transparency is I'm telling you everything I believe about everything. Another model is I don't tell you everything, but I also don't actively mislead you about what I believe. And that's the distinction. You can just kind of get past the conversation about something you want to elide because you want to leave yourself options once you get an option in office. Another is you fundamentally turn people's head towards another direction that you know is not your honest position. Yeah, but I think what hit, what Clinton seems to be doing is sort of a is, is sort of nudging people to look away. I don't I don't think there are strong examples in anything that I've read of Hillary Clinton out and out lying baldly about something. She is shading things and is not talking about things. And is well, her position on the um, Trans Pacific Partnership, which we she said set the gold yeah. standard, yeah, is yeah, totally yeah, that, that might be one. That's and, one. Oh, and, That's every, one. and lots of stuff she said about the server was just not so. I agree with you that radical transparency is not. Uh, I can't go all the way to there, but radical transparency is different than active, actively telling people something that isn't. And really I also think I also just to just sorry, just to that that you you as a politician, you are constantly performing Benthamite or or million calculations of the, the utilitarian good that you're doing in the world. And that that entitles you because we live in a world where people misinterpret things or where you don't want to talk about everything all the time that entitles you to a certain there's a certain amount of deception that we should acknowledge and accept. And I agree, John, I understand. Oh, it makes people angry. But I also would say I would come back to my original point, which is that we accept that kind of deception and lying and shading and misleading in every other aspect of our life. So why don't we accept it in politics? I don't think people who are lied to by the people they work for accept it with glee. They don't, they don't, I, I, they don't accept it with glee, but they accept, I think people accept that you are not told that your parents don't tell you everything that they're thinking or doing, and they may lie and, and tell you. They, 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 they might the lie way, and tell you, like tell you, they give, really love the thing that you wrote them or the gift parent, that you gave them. Right, but they really love that gift. They don't actually love that gift. They think it's a shitty gift. But that's different. So we don't freely give our parents the power to create laws to affect our lives. They are our parents. We give these politicians no, power. We might get stuck with we that. Get, we give these politicians power. And part of what you're doing when you're in a campaign is you're saying, I'm giving you all this power. What's the chance that you're going to be straight with me about the way you're going to use it? It's probably not a bad idea to uh, Right. To, you to want the be... chance to be high. You want it to be high as you want in family right, right. relationships and in work relationships right. it to be very high. Uh, but you don't expect it to be 100% under every circumstance. So, yeah, David, well, when you read all of these emails and the highlights from them and you imagine the Qu Clinton White House, do you think like, OK, fine, they're going to orchestrate the hell out of everything when she changes her position? Sometimes it's not going to, you know, reflect what she really thinks, but I'm going to get out of it someone who is going to be 
in control. I don't know. Like, what are the benefits that you see as you look through that and imagine her actually as president? I think she's thoughtful. She's careful. You know, she's very cautious. She has no natural instincts and no bravery. And that is that's that's a bummer. But I don't think it's. I did not find anything interesting. I I tried to read it, and every time I would sit down and read it, I would I would and drift off because it was so boring. So let me a couple of just final thoughts on that uh, on this. Yes. So the people for whom you know trade is a huge issue, they should be as a part of a campaign. You should have a closer sense of what a candidate actually believes than what they got from Hillary Clinton. So, however, her analogy about Lincoln, which she kind of didn't make a very good case for in her debate at all. But her fundamental point is true, which is that Lincoln and FDR and Reagan and lots of, and and certainly her husband benefited from allowing everybody to believe what they wanted to believe in negotiation. That dishonesty in the presidency with respect to your internal negotiations and things is a very useful tool history has shown us. And that her her example of what Lincoln did, at least as it was portrayed in that, in that movie, was to actively engage in basically say he believed things that he ultimately didn't really believe in order to get through a stage in the negotiation to get to the final thing. So in the sausage-making process – you could make a very, very strong case based on history that it is a skill to be uh, – now, that's the, the governing, not the, not the electoral process. This presidential election is as poisonous as any in my lifetime and perhaps as any in American history. But the stakes are also extremely high. There are people who think that voting – Either of the two major party candidates into office would be a disaster for the presidency. There are people who think that to cast a vote for either of them would be would be to make them com- complicit in some form of crime. There are people who are contemplating voting for third party candidates as a way of getting out of that dilemma. There are people who are contemplating not voting at all as a way of getting out of that dilemma. There are people who are other people who live in places. John and I live in a place where our presidential vote literally makes no difference. There's nothing. There's no chance that our presidential vote will have any impact on the actual election. So is it even worth it? Is it worth the time? So let's spend a few minutes talking about whether it is ethical not to vote. I'm just interested. Is it? it, it there's an economic argument. The economic argument is that for every single person in the country, it is almost certainly a better use of your time to go to sleep, to do anything else than to go vote because there is no chance that you will influence the outcome. There's some, the measurements are like if you are a new there if you're a New Hampshire voter, you have some infinitesimally small chance that you could be the deciding vote in the presidential election. Otherwise, it makes no difference. Is that a good reason for people not to vote because you can't possibly have a role in the outcome? No. <laughs> Why not? Because it creates a massive collective action problem if everybody stays home for that reason, then the uh, no, I, I know that you're right logically, but I just resist this so deeply. I just feel like voting is the most important civic responsibility and, and also like action that we can possibly take. And I find it really puzzling when people don't vote, even though I recognize that my position is the irrational one. Right. Why is it? What, so So the people who make the case that you shouldn't vote because it's against your self-interest are almost all, uh, they come out of the libertarian universe. They they say it makes sense. Yeah, it's and there's against a whole economic literature it's, about this. Yeah. So why are they wrong? 
because of the collective action problem. Because if everybody stays home and takes that advice, then we end up with no democracy in the most extreme form, or we end up with the most partisan people making the decisions for the country. And that is not good. It's much better when the people who aren't deeply committed necessarily also show up. And there's also the act of ownership that voting gives you, right? That you participated in this process. Like you bought into it enough to make a choice. And that's a problem I have with people who decide to put in a writing candidate or just like expressing disgust for the choice that is available. Because I think that there is a way in which taking part in that choice recognizes that like you have a stake in the outcome. You are a citizen of this nation and part, a little bit of it is on you. Although I was, I've been in back and forth communication with a lot of the undecided voters. And one of them, I'll just use his first name. Justin has been arguing that basically what happens is you get to this stage where there are two horrible choices. You don't like either choice and nothing is ever done to reform the system that provided you with those two choices. And so only by, uh, and so by participating in the voting system that provided you with those two choices, and neither of those two choices are promising any real change in the system that, that offered you them, you are giving consent to a system you think is, and I may be slightly bastardizing his position here, but you're giving consent to a system that you think is horrible and that won't change unless you say, no, I'm not going to do it anymore. You better fix this system that provided us with these crappy- But it won't change that because you're staying home. Well, I mean, presumably, like if you could get enough is... people, you know, if you could get enough people to believe that, then you might get change in the way in the way the system works. But this person is actually, you know, there is vote swapping that happens where you can go on the Internet and swap yep. your vote so that you can not actually cause damage, but you can also actually get your point across to the extent that people would would recognize your point getting across through your one vote. And another thing that's come across in all the, in this, all this correspondence is that a lot of people who are thinking about Johnson have left him since he just basically seems to be unserious about the presidency as they described it. And then secondly, anybody who's in a swing state says, you know, I'd vote for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, but the vote might actually matter in my state and I would hate to be a part of something in my state. The basically not wanting to be Ralph Nader. Are all of those people – People who are going to vote for Hillary? Uh, yeah. There, yeah. So there aren't people who are saying, I can't vote for Gary Johnson, so I've got to vote for Trump. The ones who all – I can't – I don't think there's any example of – most of the people who are noodling Trump just won't vote if they don't vote for him. I do have sympathy this year for conservatives. I do get the bind that they're in. They don't have an option that they may feel is acceptable. And I could imagine if I was them staying home this year or just voting for the down ballot races. Is the moral act in that case staying home? Is it a write-in? Is it uh, not voting just down ballot but not writing anyone in? What's the right answer there? Well, I don't. I never think staying home is okay. I really don't. So I think you come, you vote the down ballot races, and then maybe you leave that blank. I mean, anything you do other than vote for Clinton or Trump is meaningless, essentially. So you have kind of a choice among meaningless if, options. If you know that your two choices, as we do know, are Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton for the presidency, and you believe that one is a disaster and the other is not. Don't you have a moral obligation to vote for the other? 
I mean, if you've been a Republican your whole life, you've never pulled the lever for the Democratic candidate. You deeply disagree with the Democratic Party's agenda and way of going about business, and you don't trust Hillary Clinton. Even if you think that Donald Trump would be a terrible disaster, I could understand the visceral reasons why you just wouldn't fill in the bubble for for Hillary Clinton, that you'd write in some conservative or just leave it blank and do the rest of your voting. Doesn't that, I mean, don't you feel like that's pretty fair? That seems fair. There is, there's a number of Republicans who are pushing the idea that the only way you can make sure the government, that the Republican Party gets the message for having gone down the wrong road with Trump is by beating him big, delivering a huge defeat, and that that, that's the only way to get the message across. What's the real strong case against obliging people to vote? We oblige people to pay taxes. We oblige people to send their children to school. We oblige people to register for the draft. There are plenty of things that as a citizen of a, of a, of a free society, we actually have to do. Why is voting not one of them? Now, I understand that they, they, there's a strong conservative case against this, which is that it gets more ignorant people out and you it has more low information voters. And that's that makes it more likely we'll make bad choices or it makes it possible that we'll get worse choices because of that. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the strong argument is. I wonder what the psychological case is, too, because the first thing that came to mind is when you do a favor for a neighbor, uh, help them move their refrigerator and then that's what you've done. And then they find that people uh, are less likely to do that favor or feel the same way about it if you do the favor for your neighbor and then he hands you five bucks. That making it compulsory. Or actually, this is about coercing. That would be if you made voting something you got paid for. No, I know. Time, I'm just, right? I'm just David's saying. David's talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm just using the analogy that, that there are sometimes when you do things that you feel like are up towards a greater value, which in this case is, you know, patriotism and doing your part. And people have, you know, died to try to get the vote in America, even as recently as 50 years ago. You therefore are more invested kind of emotionally and patriotically and therefore might think about it also more than if you were just compelled to do it. It's just like, I got to, it's just yeah. one more damn thing you got to go do. Well, the only country I know of that compels yeah. is Australia. And it's, you know, Australia has a perfectly functioning government. It's not massively better or worse than ours, I think. It's got one hell of a prime minister. (laughs) Surely someone has done this, asking people how they feel about voting. Like, does it, do people resent it if it's mandatory? I mean, the other thing about mandatory voting is you can't really enforce it. I mean, you shouldn't be going around fining people really for not voting. So it's more like... I don't know, I guess like paying tax, although no, because ta- paying taxes, if you don't do it, has a real penalty. So I don't, I don't quite know what you do about the fact that like we should not be rounding people up for not voting. Well, they, in Australia, it's a small fine. It's a very small fine. It's a $15, but then do they $15 really, like, fine. Levy it? They really, if you don't have a good yeah, excuse. I guess so. I don't know how. Collecting I, that? Like, what, anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you collect it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm torn. I mean, I, I don't buy the let's prevent low information voters from voting at all. I really think it would be much better the more and more people voted. But I do think John's onto something about how when something that you are doing voluntarily and have a measure of civic pride um, about or at least like a sense of doing a good deed that if you are um, compelled to do it, that kind of changes the way you feel. I think there's some evidence to that end that. When there are new voter restriction laws passed, people who are being restricted come out to vote in higher numbers because they feel this thing to be taken away from them. 
So so maybe the best thing Democrats should do is pass try to get Republicans to pass really, really bad voter ID and voter restriction laws. Well, this also well, no, because voter ID really does prevent poor people and people of color and elderly people from voting. But I was thinking about that when Trump started um, complaining about Philadelphia voters who are going to take the election away from this week, which was a total dog whistle about, you know, black people in Philadelphia. And then which I just find so abhorrent. And then some um, black students at Howard University started talking about like, hey, we're going to come and make sure people can vote. Like if the Trump campaign is going to send poll watchers without any, you know, you can just sign up and show up and maybe intimidate people. We're going to make sure that people that we protect the um, right of enfranchisement. I found that stirring. Yeah. When Donald Trump said the in other communities, watch out for activity. And you know, you know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't even exactly. leave it unsaid. He said, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I, but I, I wonder if the Clinton campaign in response to the, you know, tear the bark off the world, Trump strategy of trying to depress democratic turnout turns that into He's trying to make this race so dis- so ugly that you don't turn out, tries to turn it into a essentially taking your vote away from you argument for the purposes of at- of attaching to the psychological response that David mentioned that's been studied since the 60s, which is if you think your vote is in threat, you're, you're more likely to go exercise it. Is early voting doing – is it high numbers in North Carolina and Ohio, places like that? What's the – what are the numbers so far? You know? uh, the Times had a fantastic story about this on uh, Wednesday. In Florida, for example, the registered Republicans are actually ahead of Democrats in the number of mail-in ballots. So it's two things to watch for, the number of mail-in ballots and then the party registration. In Pennsylvania, for example, there are 40,000 more registered Republicans than there used to be, but Democrats still have a lead of about 900,000 registered voters. But in terms of Ballot requests in Florida, their ballot requests are up 17% among Democrats and down 27% among Republicans. I think that the, the net result of all this is that more Republicans have mailed in in Florida, but m- more Democrats have requested in Florida. I think I haven't totally That's made classic that. Democrat, not bothering to follow through. I'm just saying that to goad. I did see an amazing statistic, and I don't know what period of time it covered, but over whatever the measured period of time it was, the Florida Democratic Party had registered 6,000 plus new voters, and the Florida Republican Party had registered 117. That was a pretty (laughs) shocking discrepancy. Uh, Okay. One more point, which is, don't you think that voting behavior would be different and better in this country if it were direct election of the president? That if you, in D.C., or even in where you live in Connecticut, Emily, you cast a vote for the president, it really doesn't matter because it's not really being just going to accumulate a greater majority there in a state which Hillary Clinton will win in under any circumstance. Whereas if it were, if it were, where all our votes are being counted towards a total national number your your impetus to vote would be greater. I'm going to be out of town in D.C. this year, and I'm on election day, and I have to figure out how to vote. And I was thinking, well, do I need to bother? And I, of course I will, but did think. If, if my vote I knew actually mattered, I would probably make a stronger effort. Yeah. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. I got a new shrub at home, so I made myself a cocktail for the first time in months last night. I mean, a vodka and 
Wait, shrub cocktail. To honor the shrub or with like the a shrub, shrub? A shrub, a vinegar, like it's a it's a sweetened vinegar that you can use to mix. Oh, you didn't mean something out in the yard? Uh, no, like not an actual shrub. Had, like, away from the property. Yeah. I got an actual got shrub. It. So I actually had cocktails and was actually chattering with with Mark Leibovich and and uh, Mary Colbrenner and Nareed Eisenman over uh, my cocktail. You didn't put a little rhododendron in your uh, in your. Uh, cocktail. By the way, the Mark Leibovich excerpt from the WikiLeaks is the most interesting view into Hillary Clinton, the stuff that was taken that was off the record in terms of her understanding the pickle she's in and understanding her problems with connecting with voters. I thought it was very revealing. Um, it's worth going and finding. Totally. Right. And she should have put it on the record, man. I know. And also Mark's latest piece is uh, a very fun read and illuminating. Uh, I'm going to do my chatter first, though, because my computer's about to run out of uh, power and I won't be able to read it. It is from Lapham's Quarterly, and it is the, it is Patton addressing the troops in 1944 in East Anglia. It is you, you've got to read the whole thing. Um, but it, you're not going to do that out loud. No. I know you're not. When? Oh, man, I'm not inviting you to my cocktail party. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, you were here for three reasons, he says at one point. First, because you were here to defend your homes and your loved ones. Second, you are here for your own self-respect because you would not want to be anywhere else. Third, you are here because you are real men and all real men like to fight. When you, here, every one of you were kids, you all admired the champion marble player, the fastest runner, the toughest boxer, the biggest, the, the big league ball players, and the all-American football players. Americans love a winner. Americans will not tolerate a loser. Americans despise cowards. Americans play to win all of the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost nor will ever lose a war for the very idea of losing is hateful to an American. It is a, uh, it's an extraordinary speech from Patton that ends by saying what they will think about when they're talking about to their grandchildren. And he said, if you fight today, no, sir, you can look him, meaning the young child, straight in the eye and say, son, your granddaddy rode with the general of the Third Army and a son of a goddamn bitch named George Patton. That is all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Emily, do you have any uh, American generals to quote? I am not quoting any American generals. I am recommending a book called Innocence and Others by Dana Spiata, which I'm like halfway through and a friend recommended. And I'm just so enjoying it. It's about... What's this book about? It's about making movies and female friendship and kind of unexpected relationships across distance. And it's very subtle, but also accessible. And I'm finding myself really looking forward to picking it up at night. So um, it's called Innocence and Others by Dana Spiata. All right. I'm also going to do a couple of book recommendations for my chatter. Two really good books by really good friends. Jess Gross, former colleague of ours at Slate. Now, the editor of Lenny, Lena Dunham's excellent newsletter, is has a novel out called Soulmates, which is about yoga and a yoga retreat. And it's very funny and spicy a little bit and fun, dark, and it's really fun. Soulmates by Jess Gross. The other is by Bob Eckstein, who's a New Yorker cartoonist, a, a national treasure. And he went, John, this is actually a book you will love. He went and painted about a hundred of the world's greatest bookstores, some famous, some little known, some beautiful, some teeny. Then in addition to painting them, he has interviews the owners or people who work there and tells wonderful little anecdotes. It's a beautiful book. It's a great 
it's a great kind of present book for some friend in your life who loves bookstores. It's it's a lovely book by Bob Eckstein called Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores. Our interns, Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers, chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Show page is Slate.com slash GabFest with links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Join us for the Conundrum Show at the Bell House November 30th, and we will talk to you next week.